I am like the king of null results. I love null result papers. And so, you know, even if you found nothing. Happy, happy to come back when, with the next null result. <laughs> Welcome to Ergs in Equilibrium, a podcast where we discuss recent papers in energy and environmental economics. Ergs in Equilibrium is a joint initiative of the Canadian Association for Energy Economics and the Ivy Energy Policy and Management Centre. My name is Brandon Shifley. I am the director of the Ivy Energy Centre and an associate professor of business, economics and public policy at the Ivy Business School. Today, my guest is Catherine Wagner. Catherine has just started as an assistant professor at the Vancouver School of Economics at the University of British Columbia. Her research focuses on environmental and energy economics and public finance, applying, as we'll discuss, a wide array of empirical tools to study questions related to environmental externalities, climate change, and natural resources. Today, Catherine and I will discuss her new paper, Technology Lock-In and Optimal Carbon Pricing. This paper is co-authored with Jonathan Hawkins Perot. Catherine, thanks for chatting with me. Thanks so much for having me. So this paper opens with a question. Does the absence of carbon pricing today reduce the effectiveness of carbon pricing in the future? The analysis fits in with a growing literature on putty clay capital and vintage effects. You're specifically interested in studying technology lock-in and manufacturing energy intensity. Can you provide the big picture context for this research and outline how it connects with climate policy? Yeah, so we're we're really hoping with this paper to draw attention to some of the costs of delayed action on climate policy. So it seems that each intergovernmental panel on climate change report predicts climate change effects that are increasingly severe and costly, and yet attempts to increase energy prices to incentivize reductions in energy consumptions and the associated emissions continue to face global opposition. So the US, for instance, where our study is focused, has put 50 carbon pricing bills before Congress in the past 30 years, and none of these has actually passed. Canada, where carbon pricing has been a little more successful, still struggles to set prices that fully internalize the social costs of energy consumption. And so in this paper, we're trying to quantify the energy and emissions costs associated with delayed action on carbon pricing, and in this case, focusing specifically on U.S. manufacturing. So we're quantifying the extent to which plants opening when there's no carbon price will consume more energy in the future, even if a carbon price is introduced later on, and then studying why these effects arise. And so our, our results, which I'm hoping we'll discuss more in a bit, also point to ro roles for alternative policies, such as subsidies to capital turnover, which may be more politically feasible. And so you focus on this phenomenon that you call technology lock-in. And this is where plants respond to current energy prices when they enter the market. Can you provide a bit more background on what you mean by technology lock-in? Yeah, so in a nutshell, technology lock-in refers to the persistent effect of initial market conditions on production. So input use, underlying structure, the production technology process, um, and so on. So in other words, your production technology is, is path dependent, depends on what it was when you started. And in our paper, we're looking specifically at lock-in of energy use in response to entry year energy prices. So intuitively, if you're a manufacturing plant coming online when energy is dirty and cheap, you may choose a dirtier production technology than you otherwise would if energy were more expensive. 
and that if lock-in is important, it may be difficult for you to adjust your production process, become more energy efficient down the road, even if energy prices rise later on. And so we're going to estimate the extent to which these entry or electricity prices have persistent effects on long-run energy uses, so the extent to which lock-in arises, and then explore mechanisms for, for how and why. So prior to your paper, what do we know about the implications of technology lock-in? You know, what's new here? Yeah, so I think our paper contributes to three literatures. The, the first is a literature on path dependence in transitions from dirty to clean energy sources. So we're providing what we believe is the first estimate of the importance of entry or electricity prices for industrial energy intensity in subsequent years, and then mechanisms for why these entry or electricity prices are, are important. The second related literature is on industrial environmental regulation, which typically focuses on the dynamics of one industry in great detail, such as cement or electricity, or looks at other different important outcomes across many industries using static models. And so we view our contribution as sort of bringing these two literatures together to provide a new generalizable explanation for why the dynamics in these individual industries arise and specifically focusing on the role of persistent differences in the relative productivities of inputs, which we estimate. So understanding whether and to what extent technology lock-in arises and why is important for designing policies to incentivize reductions in energy use. And the US government has earmarked $400 billion to invest in these industrial energy efficiency improvements in the next few years. And so at the very least, Ignoring the dynamic effects of energy prices today on energy use tomorrow understates the benefits of pricing carbon today. And so then the third related literature is on integrated assessment models, which are commonly employed to predict the outcomes of policy, but which are sometimes critiqued for their uh, somewhat intransparent choice of parameters. And so we're providing a novel estimate of one of these parameters, the rate of decarbonization, which is one of the more important ones for predicting the outcomes of the model runs. So there's a lot of really important contributions to this paper. You know, the IAMs, the policies to incentivize, the path dependence. I want to pick up on this path dependence a bit because you mentioned this already. One of the mechanisms that you guys are thinking about is the difficulty to adjust capital. You know, once capital's been invested, once it's sunk, you know, it's clay, it's no longer adjustable. What are some of the other mechanisms that you guys are thinking about in your analysis? Yeah, so, so in the paper, we write down a, a simple two-period model of manufacturing plants, entry, exit, and capital investment decisions to get at some of these channels. So all of the same intuitions from the simple model carry forward into the more complicated uh, multi-period dynamic model that we, with alternative assumptions under uh, about plants' expectations of future energy prices, which we look at in more detail in the appendix. So plants in the model can respond to energy price changes along three margins. So first, they can adjust their fully flexible inputs. Those are labor and energy that are chosen in each period without any fixed or convex adjustment costs. So these inputs are different from capital investment, which you were getting at, which comes along with these additional adjustment costs and which is the second channel through which plants can respond to energy price changes. Third, plants can respond by entering or exiting the market. So this selection into the market on the basis of differences in productivity is actually the first way that technology lock-in can arise. So this is completely distinct from capital adjustment costs, which is the second channel. And we, we talked about this one as well. 
So, so this idea behind the selection is that potential entrants are going to observe their productivity draws and prices and then decide whether or not they want to enter. And all else equal, a higher energy price means that potential entrants need a higher productivity draw in order for it to be worthwhile for them to enter, right? So there's kind of a higher bar they need to clear in order for it to be worthwhile for them to um, enter and actually begin, um, begin operating and be profitable to do so. And so this means that plants entering the market at higher energy prices will be relatively more productive on average than plants entering at lower energy prices. And then if these productivity differences persist over time, these entry or energy prices will have persistent effects on energy use in subsequent years, right? So that's exactly the lock-in effect that I was just talking about before. And so then in addition to this selection effect on the productivity of new entrants, capital adjustment costs are the second way that technology lock-in can arise in our model. So Fixed capital adjustment costs means that it may not be worthwhile for you to actually respond to small price changes. So having someone come in, pull your machine out of the ground, pause operations, get someone to come and install a new one, that may not be worthwhile for you to do. But the energy price only changes a little bit. And then the convex adjustment cost means that large investments are more costly than small ones. And so you may not adjust all the way if energy prices change um, a lot. And we're gonna focus in the empirical part of the paper first and actually measuring to what extent lock-in arises and then try to distinguish between these two channels. So there are a range of policy implications that arise from this. And before we talk about those, let's figure out what you guys do and sort of what you find. Uh, you mentioned that the paper proceeds in sort of two steps. And that first part is you really want to evaluate the extent that this technology, this technology lock-in occurs. Tell me about your data and tell me about the approach you use here and why. Yeah, so related to our, our data, our primary data source is restricted access microdata on plant inputs, outputs, and entry and exit dates from the U.S. Census. And this includes the universe of manufacturing plants opening after 1975. So we're drawing on a variety of different census surveys, including the Census of Manufacturing, Annual Survey of Manufacturing, which is conducted in between censuses and then related energy use surveys. And so from these data, we construct variables that we need in order to analyze lock-in. So we're getting plant level electricity prices, plant level energy intensity, and then plant level productivity. And so electricity prices and energy intensity, we can calculate directly from the data. And the productivity measures we derive ourselves by estimating the structural parameters of plants production functions. You, you've got these these three sets of data, and you end up with a data set that's fairly large, you know, 1.3 million observations. And so this provides you a lot of flexibility. Uh, you, you start off with a couple of you know, simple plots on, you know, time series of energy prices. What do these initial figures show? So these figures are showing the time series variation in the primary right-hand side and left-hand side variables that we're going to use in the main uh, econometric models. So the first figure shows that electricity prices experienced quite a few ups and downs during, during the 35 years of our data, though actually in the empirical estimates, we're going to use cross-sectional variation in electricity prices rather than this time series variation, because we want to also control for you know, simultaneous fluctuations and macroeconomic conditions and, and so on. The second figure then shows that energy intensity has declined by about 30% over our sample time period. So in this figure, we're showing three different measures of energy intensity. So the first is electricity use per dollar revenue, 
which we observe precisely in each year of our data because electricity use is always surveyed, unlike, say, um, diesel inputs. And the reason for this is because electricity accounts for about 95% of British thermal units of energy consumed on average. So the second two measures then will include, um, say, the use of a bit of diesel fuel by looking at um, total carbon dioxide produced per dollar revenue and British thermal units of energy consumed per dollar revenue. So the, the time series of these last two measures are noisier in the figures because they're surveyed much less frequently. But in the empirical analysis, we're going to find consistent results across all of these different metrics. And the overall decline that we find, about 30%, uh, is consistent with other work using more aggregate data or shorter time periods. And then the third figure, uh, this one shows the time series of the productivity measures that we estimate. So we see that total factor productivity has more than doubled during our sample time period, which has also been shown in, in other work. And then more interesting to us are the new estimates of the relative productivity of energy compared with labor. And these have actually remained mostly constant over this time period and then declined um, slightly recently, which means that the productivity of energy and labor actually grew in tandem over much of this time period. And then labor productivity has perhaps grown at a higher rate in the last few years. So of course, our goal here is to see how entry electricity prices influence these trends. So, so the figures are kind of motivation for going forward. Can you walk me through your main econometric specification to look at technology lock-in? Sure. Okay. Math and words. <laughs> so uh, the main econometric specification here, so we're regressing an energy outcome, so energy intensity and energy productivity from our figures on entry or electricity prices, current electricity prices, state by industry fixed effects, and industry by year by entry or fixed effects. I'll describe why we have those in in a sec. But we're primarily interested in the estimated effect of entry or electricity prices on our energy outcomes. So when energy intensity is the outcome variable, we expect higher entry or electricity prices to lead to lower subsequent energy use if technology lock-in is important. So we're looking at the sign of that um, parameter. And then if persistence in initial productivity is an important driver of this effect, then we expect relative energy productivity to be higher when entry or electricity prices are higher. So looking now at a regression where the relative productivity of inputs is the outcome variable. Going back to the fixed effects then, the state by industry fixed effects here are controlling for time invariant characteristics common to an industry in, specific, in a specific state such as geography, and then the industry by year, by entry year, fixed effects, control for time varying changes that affect all plants in a given industry that opened in the same year. So in other words, we're controlling for everything that all cement plants that opened in 1990 have in common in every year. And so this means that our elasticity estimates actually come from variation within an entry year cohort. So we're controlling for most of the, uh, we're controlling for the best available or most energy efficient technology that was actually available to all of these plants when they opened. So all of these plants could have chosen the same technology when they opened, but we're actually going to find that they're still going to make different choices depending on what the prevailing electricity price was. And so if technology lock-in was irrelevant, we would expect those cohort year electricity prices to be irrelevant. Is that correct? The entry or electricity price ones. Yeah. So conditional on current electricity prices, we wouldn't expect to find an effective entry or one. So this would mean that 
plants were able to get away from their entry or electricity price, so to speak, and re-optimize their technology in line with whatever the current price is. Now, you guys have a few concerns about reverse causality and measurement error. And so you rely on this instrumental variable strategy. Specifically, you construct shift share instruments. You know, why do you adopt this approach? How do you construct your instruments? And what are some of the challenges to identification that we should still be watching for after applying the shift share approach? Yeah, so even conditional on the fixed effects that I just described, we might be concerned about emitted variables from, say, the classic simultaneous determination of prices and quantities here, or measurement error, which could bias our estimated electricity price estimate. So we're particularly concerned about measurement error in our entry year electricity price estimates, because the plant isn't surveyed by the census in its entry year, then we don't know precisely what its entry year electricity price was. And so we're going to, in these instances, we're going to approximate a plant's initial electricity price using the average of other entrants in the same state and industry and in the same entry year. But this could mean that our initial electricity price estimate, which captures the lock-in effect, could be biased towards zero, biased towards finding no lock-in. And so to address these concerns, we construct these shift share instruments. And the instruments use the interaction between the historical contribution of different fossil fuels used to generate electricity in each state in our first year of data. So think how much coal was used to generate electricity in, in Ohio in 1976. We're going to take these shares and interact them with the national prices of these fuels. So the price of, say, coal in each year of our data. And the intuition is, the state like Ohio historically relied a lot on coal, then electricity prices in Ohio are more likely to rise when coal prices go up than electricity prices in say California, which uses much less coal. So we're gonna construct one set of instruments using this logic for current electricity prices, and then one set for our initial electricity prices. And so for these instruments to be valid, we need plants, differential exposure to these changes in national fuel prices to be uncorrelated with other shocks to plants input demand. So for example, suppose the extent to which states use coal in 1976 is correlated with the availability of skilled labor. This would be a problem. And so guided by the literature, we're gonna in the paper examine, or we do in fact now examine, um, correlates of the fuel shares to assess whether this assumption appears to hold. And so Reassuringly, we find no evidence of any kind of systematic correlation here between these initial fuel shares and state characteristics that we think might be relevant for input demand. And so we feel relatively confident carrying these instruments forward into the analysis. Yeah, more to the point, I think, if your main concern is measurement error, and we know that in these models with a lot of fixed effects, measurement error leads to attenuation bias typically we maybe feel a little bit more at ease that it's not an economic factor that's driving some reverse causality problem when we're using these shift share instruments. And so I, you know, I think this is a pretty compelling story and you guys do some good robustness around that. But you get a bunch of results. You know, what do the results show and you know, how should we interpret them? So in short, part of the reason we're having this conversation is that we do in fact find robust evidence of technology lock-in in US manufacturing. So we're first showing that the prices of fossil fuel inputs into electricity themselves have persistent effects on manufacturing energy intensity. So this is the so-called reduced form regression of our outcome variables on the instruments. 
So specifically, we're finding that plants that entered when coal or petroleum was really cheap are still more energy intensive today, even though the US has transitioned away from using these fuels to generating electricity. So petroleum use is basically zero today. And yet, whatever its entry or electricity price was still matters for determining plants' energy intensity. And so we view this as a red flag for countries such as India, which are still very reliant on coal. Continuing to expand cheap fossil fuel power seems likely to lock in higher levels of emissions for, for many years. And then we also find evidence of lock-in in the full OLS and IV regressions of our energy outcome variables on the entry year and current electricity prices. So we're estimating that a 10% increase in entry year electricity prices decreases subsequent energy intensity by about 2.5%, which suggests that we're leaving about 25% of the benefits of energy reduction on the table by not pricing carbon in a plant's entry year. And then we're also finding pretty limited heterogeneous effects by plant age which suggests that this lock-in actually persists throughout the lifetime of the plant, and it's really difficult for them to get away from whatever their entry or electricity price was. Um, and so you find this putty clay phenomenon that, you know, we can choose at the start, but once capital is installed, it's basically fixed. You know, it's very costly to adjust inputs. That's right. So you move on from your reduced form results to estimate relative productivities buy plants at point of entry. You know, what approach do you take and can you outline the method? Um, you know, what does it get you? What's it add that the reduced form results don't capture? So our goal on this part of the paper is to estimate total factor productivity and the relative productivity of energy compared with labor for each plant in each year that it's observed. So we need these estimates as outcome variables in our regressions to assess to what extent the effect of entry or electricity prices on energy intensity can be explained by persistent differences in productivity. So that's the selection effect on the productivity of new entrants that I, that I mentioned before when we talked about the model. And then whatever can't be explained by this persistent effect of productivity, we show in the model can be attributed to capital adjustment costs, that second channel. And so to get these productivities, we estimate the structural parameters of a constant elasticity of substitution production function. So we're using this CES production function because the standard called Douglas functional form actually rules out possibility of capital and uh, complementarity between capital and energy in the production function. And this is what creates lock-in. And so we, we obviously want to allow this um, in the model. And so to do this estimation, we're applying methods used to estimate the relative productivity of labor to energy instead. So in a nutshell, how we go about this is that we start with plants maximization problem where they're choosing their static inputs only, so labor and energy. And then using the ratio of these first order conditions from this problem, we can derive an equation that tells us that the relative input use depends on relative prices and relative productivity appropriately weighted by the substitution parameter and the production function. And since we observe input use and prices, we suppose for a second that we knew what the substitution parameter was, we can go to this equation and back out what relative productivity must be. And then with this 
relative productivity of energy compared with labor in hand, we can go back to the first order condition for energy and back out total factor productivity, which dropped out when we took the ratio. And so uh, we go through this using a generalized method of moments approach, but we actually find that the substitution and returns to scale parameters that we recover are pretty comparable to those um, in the literature using um, other functional forms. So you apply the Ackerberg-Caves-Fraser approach to get these parameters of the production function. You do this for every firm in your sample. You know, from a practical perspective, just how long did that take you to get these data? Because I imagine it took days. So yeah, so we have about 1.3 million observations and we're, we're recovering the parameters at the uh, four digit North American industry classification code level. So about 84 industries. And so it took about half a day to run. So not too bad, you know, something reasonable. Not too bad. You can't exactly sit and watch it while the grass grows. And so what do you do with these estimates? So the productivity estimates become outcome variables in our analysis. So we re-estimate the same econometric model we use to assess how entry or electricity prices affect energy intensity. That's the one I talked about before with all the fixed effects. Except now we're interested in the effect on total factor productivity or the relative productivity of energy compared with labor. And we're going to compare the magnitude of the effect of entry or electricity prices on productivity to the magnitude of the overall effect of entry or electricity prices on energy use to assess how much of the lock-in effect is due to these persistent differences in productivity rather than capital adjustment costs. And so what do you find? You know, how much is due to this path dependency problem? Yeah, so that's the first main result. It appears as though much of the lock-in effect can be explained by the selection effect on productivity rather than capital adjustment costs. So the role of capital adjustment costs appears to be relatively small on average. The magnitude of the effect of entry or electricity prices on energy productivity, so this, this second regression, second set of regressions that we're running, is very close to and statistically indistinguishable from the effect on energy intensity. And, and this was surprising to us, given this uh, putty clay literature, because these models typically point to capital adjustment costs as being the key constraint on plants' ability to adjust their technology. But here we're, we're pointing to a new, um, different channel that appears to play as large a role, if, if not larger. The other result coming out of this analysis that was interesting to us is that entry or electricity prices appear, appear to affect the bias of technological change between inputs, so to, uh, shifting productivity towards energy without really affecting the overall level of total factor productivity. So in both the reduced form and the OLS and IV specifications, we're finding the same pattern of results for our relative productivity of energy use outcome variables as we did with our energy intensity outcome variables. So plants that entered when prices are higher use their energy inputs more productively compared with their labor inputs. We don't find any effects on total factor productivity. One of the questions is why? You know, are firms bad at predicting what future energy prices will be? Or are we expecting rational expectations? You know, why don't firms accurately forecast you know, increases or comparably decreases in future energy prices? So it very well could be the case that they're doing so. So our results don't depend on a particular structure of expectations about future energy prices, right? Given whatever expectations plants have about the time path of energy prices, 
technology lock-in arises and it appears to be driven by the relative productivity of these different inputs. And now if plants know that energy prices or increases are coming in the future, we show uh, in the more complicated model in the, the, the appendix that actually technology lock-in could still arise because of discounting. So plants know future energy prices are price increases are coming, but because these prices are price increases are coming in the future and your investment costs are incurred now, you still may not adjust to that full, most energy efficient technology you would have chosen at entry because of discounting. And so even if we have full information, we still experience this lock-in effect. That's right. And so what are some of the policy implications of technology lock-in? You know, you motivated the paper talking about carbon pricing and you guys come up with a few recommendations that follow from your results. You want to dig into those a little bit? Related to the title of our paper, ignoring this technology lock-in underestimates the benefits of pricing carbon today. So we're approximating that we're leaving about 25% of the benefits on the table by not pricing carbon in a plant's entry year. And as a result, future carbon prices might have to be more stringent than if they were introduced at entry because small taxes or small technology subsidies may not be enough to incentivize plants to uh, reverse sunk, partially irreversible capital investment, pay the adjustment costs that I talked about earlier, or to exit the market. And so we view these results as particularly concerning for developing countries that are continuing to expand fossil fuel power, which our results suggest seems likely to lock in energy and efficient production technologies and higher emissions levels for, for many years in the future. And then in the US, which as I mentioned before, has earmarked $400 billion for industrial energy efficiency improvements in coming years, our results suggest it would be perhaps useful to target this money towards technology adoption subsidies, say, for the plants that entered during low energy price regimes, which are less efficient. And related to this, there, there are a couple of reasons why we think our estimates are actually potentially lower bounds on the effects of actually implementing a carbon price. And the first reason is because they're at, we're actually excluding plants that exit in response to energy price changes, right? When a plant closes, it no longer shows up in the census, it isn't surveyed. But these plants that close in response to energy price changes are plausibly the most locked in, right? They couldn't adjust to energy price changes through investment and they had to close. Second, our results are based on year-on-year -year fluctuations in energy costs. And this is different from how a carbon price operates, right? So carbon price creates a sustained, hopefully permanent increase in energy prices, which leads to perhaps larger upfront energy efficiency investments if plants know that they're going to be paying higher prices for, for many years in the future. One of the implications uh, of your results is maybe it justifies technology standards. You know, as economists, we tend not to like technology standards because they impose a constraint when we may not want a constraint. You know, a benefit of low energy prices is that the energy is abundant. And so if we can make use of that abundant resource, you know, that creates benefits for everyone. But, you know, if we're worried about these locking effects, you know, maybe that provides an argument that, okay, if energy prices are low and energy is abundant now, that doesn't mean energy prices are going to be low, energy is going to be abundant forever. And we want to avoid situations where we're stuck with 
you know, old technology. And that would support, you know, technology standards as opposed to some of the other policies that are out there. Out there. Subsidies work similarly. They incentivize decision makers to adopt better technologies. Based upon your results, what do you think of some of these alternative policy instruments? Yeah, well, certainly policies other than a carbon tax now are being discussed simply because it's been so hard to actually implement a carbon tax. And so we do see that other policies of this type, subsidies, mandates, technology standards, these have been implemented and seem to be able to uh, actually function in a way that for whatever reason, a carbon tax hasn't been. All right. So this is still a working paper. Has any other research along this dimension come out recently? You know, when you're answering that too, can you maybe provide some insight into what the research frontier is on climate policy and technology lock-in? Yeah, well, I guess relative to related to your first question, uh, after this, I'm going to go and read uh, Joe Aldi and Sarah Armitage's new National Bureau of Economic Research working paper that uh, came out this morning on the role of policy uncertainty in determining uh, whether carbon prices or uh, quantity-based instruments would uh, be more efficient. Uh, for us, in working on this, so I think related to your question before about uh, plant expectations and, and how those matter, I don't think we actually necessarily know how plants formulate beliefs about future energy prices. And so we'd like to dig into that a little bit. What do plants actually believe about how energy prices are going to change in the future? Do they think prices are uh, a random walk or are they actually forward looking, perfectly anticipating all future price changes, just, just as you asked? And so interpretation of our results in this paper doesn't depend on the answer, but I think it does matter for pinning down exactly how plants will respond to carbon prices in the future and whether communicating the full path uh, is something that's going to be required in order for plants to respond to those future price changes when you know we hopefully have carbon prices um, more broadly in the future. My guest today has been Catherine Wagner. Catherine, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Ergs and Equilibrium podcast. For more information, you can visit ergsandequilibrium.ca. For any questions or comments, you can email bshifley at ivy.ca. That's B-S-C-H-A-U-F-E-L-E at ivy.ca. Have a great day.